0: Brew yourself a pot of hot tea. It's winter on Monocle 24, and you're listening to Winter Weekend. Today, I'll be joined by the conservation biologist Tor Hansen to discuss the buzz surrounding bees and the vital role they play in nature.
1: In this century, we really can't talk about bees without also confronting the problems that they face, the challenges that they face in their environment. Colony collapse disorder really sprang onto the scene in 2006.
0: Also ahead, David Pleasant takes us to Argentina, where a campaign is underway to save a modernist architectural gem. Our executive editor, Josh Fennett, gives us a sneak peek inside the pages of the brand new issue of Monocle magazine and from our Winter Film Club. Hadley Freeman explains how corporate changes of the 1980s radically reshape the kind of movies we watch. And we've got a weekend viewing suggestion too. Snuggle up. Your winter weekend starts now. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, coming to you from Midori House in London. It's a pleasure to be with you on this chilly November morning. Now, we seem to be hearing an awful lot about bees lately. They are, of course, vital to the survival of our planet. And yet, perhaps because they're so small and a lot of people are afraid of them, these buzzy little creatures are often misunderstood buzz the nature and necessity of bees is a book by the conservation biologist Tor hansen in it he outlines everything from the insects biology to their relationship with flowers and discusses threats posed by climate change and pollution he joins me now on the line Tor, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you now there's certainly a heightened awareness of bees and the role they play in nature where does your book fit in
1: When I decided to write this book, what I really wanted to do was sort of broaden the beam of our attention from our narrow focus on one species of bee, the wonderful bee that we know best, the honeybee, and start to talk about the great diversity of bees that we have in the world people are really familiar with the diversity of flowers we see in a meadow or at the local flower shop but what we don't know so well is that coevolution between flowers and bees also led to an incredible diversity of bees. And there are more species in the world than all the birds and mammals combined. And that we have perhaps 20,000 different species buzzing around this planet. So I wanted to start a deeper conversation about that diversity.
0: And people shouldn't be put off by the fact that basically this is about science, because you do it in such an accessible way, a way in which we can all understand what you're talking about. It's a mix of science, of history. There's wonderful anecdotes in there lots of wit. I think it's a beautifully written book that really does, as you say, alert us to the wider world of bees. Now, you start off talking about the very beginning of bee life.
1: Yes. So this is a fascinating story, and we only know bits of it from the fossil record, but we can fill in the details from the results of this great evolutionary story. And it's poorly known, but bees evolved from wasps, and they still look a lot like them, which is why the two groups are so often confused. But here is a tip to tell the difference between a bee and a wasp at your next picnic. If the insect that is pestering you is going after the roast beef or the fried chicken or the bologna in your sandwich, then it's almost it's certainly a wasp, in that wasps are inherently carnivorous. They are scavengers and hunters that are constantly searching the landscape for other insects to attack or spiders or bits of meat that they can take back and feed to their larvae, their babies, back at the nest, whereas bees evolved from that habit, a vegetarian habit, and learned to provision themselves and their offspring solely from the products of flowers. And in doing so, they set themselves on their own evolutionary pathway, and their bodies and their habits begin to adjust, to adapt to it, including the evolution of long tube-like tongues for sipping nectar and the evolution of branched feathery hairs specifically adapted for carrying pollen from the flowers back home to the nest. So the bees really are what some people have called the hippie wasps in that they are the long-haired flower-loving vegetarians.
0: (laughs) So you have a whole section really on bees and flowers, but then you go on to bees and people of honeyguides and hominins.
1: Yes. So we think of our connection to bees as as something that dates back thousands of years. And we know that the beekeeping habit with domestic honeybees and and with other species that have been domesticated in other parts of the world dates back at least to the middle kingdom of Egypt where there are clear records of quite sophisticated clay hives being ferried up and down the river Nile in time with seasonal crop blooms and wildflower blooms. So this was very well established at that time. It's a long and ancient tradition. But there are some who think Our connection to bees should be dated in the millions of years. A fascinating new line of research has shown that the hunter-gatherers, many of them who are still living a traditional lifestyle, and particularly one group, the Hadza in Tanzania in East Africa, the very landscape where our species is thought to have evolved, get A remarkable amount of their food from honey. They follow these birds to nests, these honey guides that have co-evolved to lead honey hunters to bee nests, and they raid the nests of not only honeybees, but at least six other honey-making varieties in that landscape, and they look for honey all the time, every day. It's the favorite food within that community, and it makes up at least 15% of the diet, So anthropologists look at this as an overlooked part of our evolutionary history, perhaps, that this surge of sugary calories that our ancestors got from chasing bees and finding their honey may have indeed helped to bolster our growing brains.
0: And what of the future then of bees and indeed our planet so far as it relates to what bees and how bees interact with us?
1: Well, in this century, we really can't talk about bees without also confronting the problems that they face, the challenges that they face in their environment. Colony collapse disorder really sprang onto the scene in 2006 when it appeared in the United States and then later the same or similar malady spread to Europe and was wiping out whole hives of honeybees that were managed by professional beekeepers, the people who knew and know how to take care of bees the best. So it spurred a great deal of research, and after more than a decade now, really only one thing is clear, and that is that it's more than one thing that's causing bee declines. Some have begun to call this, instead of colony collapse, a multiple stress disorder. And several of the key stressors have been summarized as the four P's. They are pathogens and parasites and pesticides. And also, what we refer to as poor nutrition, meaning the simple lack of floral resources in many landscapes now for bees, whether they are places that are being developed or even out in the countryside in rural areas where our farming practices, in the bid to become more efficient, have eliminated many hedgerows and we tend to farm field to field with single crops over large areas, producing a lot of food, but at the same time, eliminating the habitat that has been essential for maintaining good populations and diverse populations of not only honeybees but the many native bees that inhabit these places. So we've seen real declines in bee populations, not just the honeybees but for the species that we have data, many native bees as well like many of the bumblebees and others. So the challenges they face are serious but the good news is that we do know enough to take action in very specific ways that can help bees by providing more flowers and nesting habitat, by reducing or eliminating the use of pesticides, and by limiting or avoiding the long-distance transport of bees from place to place, because, of course, their pathogens travel with them. And we do have evidence that pathogens can be transmitted from, say, domestic honeybees out into natural populations. And these relatively straightforward steps have the effect effect of increasing the health of bees overall so that they are more resilient against some of the other challenges that we would have a harder time controlling.
0: And finally, Tor, we really can't do without them, can we?
1: Oh, they're essential. We rely upon bees for not only the pollination of so many wild species of plants, but also for, depending on how you parse the numbers, amounts to as much as a third of the food in the human diet. And not just the quantity of food, but also the quality. When you look at what the foods are that the bees provide. Yes, there are wind-pollinated staples in our diet, like wheat and oats and rice and things like that, but if you look at the things that make food interesting and make food flavorful and delicious from the many fruits and vegetables to a large number of our herbs and spices, the things that we really think about when we look forward to a meal, many, many, many of those, the vast majority are bee pollinated.
0: Thank you very much indeed. That is Tor Hansen, who is the author of Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees, which is out now. It's published by Icon Books. To Argentina now, via the rather grand surroundings of the residence of the Argentine ambassador to the UK in Belgravia. An impressive setting to launch the campaign to save and restore a valuable piece of modernist architectural heritage. The Ariston Club, with its unique quatrefoil shape, standing at the Atlantic coast in the once glamorous resort of Mar del Plata, is the only work of architect and Bauhaus member Marcel Breuer in South America. It was built in 1948 as a beach club. Now, in 2019, the Bauhaus centenary year, it stands totally derelict and in desperate need of attention. British-Argentinian journalist Vanessa Bell has stepped in and is on a mission to save Mar del Plata's modern masterpiece. She spoke to Monocle's David Pleasant.
2: So I've flown over especially from Buenos Aires to present a project to save and restore... Um, Marcel Breuer's only work in Latin America, which is on the coast of Argentina.
3: Tell us a little bit about that building. Um, Can you describe it?
2: So essentially it is a four-leaf clover. It was uh, a design produced by Marcel Breuer over coffee with an Argentine architect called Eduardo Catalano and it was built over two short months in 1948. This was because Breuer was actually invited over to give a series of talks at the Buenos Aires University in 1947.
3: How did you come across it, especially now we're in London, thousands of miles away in Mar del Plata, there's this extraordinary building. Can you tell us the story about how you came across it and and really where it all began?
2: So um, for the last five or six years, I've been specializing as a freelance journalist in Argentine architecture and design. I'd seen pictures of it, um, archival photos, and I'd always known about it. And then I'd seen pictures online of it in a terrible state. But it wasn't until earlier this year that I actually saw it in person. And seeing it in in that condition, especially in the centennial year of Bauhaus, I just thought it's a travesty. Something needs to be done about it. And I just felt that I was going to take it upon myself to actually do something concrete.
3: And you got quite far quite quickly. So just a few days or weeks ago, you've actually signed some sort of contract. Maybe tell us about the, the intricacies of, of the campaign and what you're hoping to do.
2: So yeah, so over a period of five months, I researched who the owners were and and actually had a series of meetings with them. The building wasn't for sale. It's been in their ownership for 30 years and I managed to convince them to sell it to me. So this contract gives me exclusive rights to acquire it um, over the next six months, find the funding and I'll essentially acquire it with my foundation.
3: What does this building mean for the location for Mar del Plata. Maybe tell us a little bit about that city and uh, what it means for Argentina, what what you're hoping to do in terms of raising awareness of, of modernist heritage there.
2: So Mar del Plata was, um, a, it is still a coastal city. It's a coastal city that in the turn of the 1900s was where rich uh, aristocratic Argentines built houses um, as their summer retreat. It was the Atlantic coast's equivalent of the French Riviera. It was very chic, and I suppose it's sort of fallen out of favour a little bit. It's a little bit, has that whole sort of faded glamour. But certainly the architectural legacy is, is really apparent when you visit it, both from turn-of-the-century architecture to modernism. It, it boasts lots of incredible modernist gems. So not only if this was my idea is to restore it and create a cultural centre, what it will do for Mother Plateau is enormous because it'll attract Argentine tourism, but it'll also attract international visitors. And I think that it will be something that will open up Mother Platter to the world.
3: I mean, we're sort of on a cusp of, this is a sector that maybe you and I know quite well, uh, modernist heritage, where obviously we're mega fans, (laughs) we're we're proper geeks. But you mentioned the 100th anniversary of Bauhaus. Um, There's been various other sort of key milestone events. and, And there's some names that more and more people are becoming familiar with. Do you feel like you can capitalise on that with the Ariston Club? Basically, is your idea, your project being well-received in Argentina beyond the architecture community, let's say? Is there recognition? Is it is that growing?
2: I think that when it first opened, the Parador was uh, like a sort of a bistro where people would stop a beach house on the way in and out of Madel Plata. And it was then uh, the first floor was a, a piano bar and a sort of little nightclub. And there were many people who have very, very fond memories of visiting it when it was open. And I think what this will do for both the local community and Argentines who would vacation there is allow them to revisit something from their past, the importance of remembering and valuing both cultural legacy as well as architectural legacy. So I think it, it, it'll basically deliver on many fronts, not just the actual thing of restoring a building, but also what it will return to both the local community and Argentina as a whole.
3: And finally, here's your pitch. What are you looking for <laughs> right now? What can people do to, to get involved? It's very early days. I doubt you've even got a website yet, <laughs> but um, just give us the pitch.
2: So the first six months, the most important thing is the acquisition of the building itself, which we need to raise $300,000. I've just recently set up uh, an Instagram, which is Save the Ariston underscore Arj, And that's going to start being active. Um, one can also follow me on Creme de la Creme BA, which is my personal Instagram. Um, and obviously, I'm going to be updating on there as the developments as they happen. But the idea will be to set up a crowdfunding and do international fundraising once we've done the acquisition. The main and the most sort of time sensitive thing is the actual acquisition of the building. And so the clock's it, ticking. The clock's ticking already, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it's a bit nerve wracking but exciting and I've already had a lot of interest.
0: Many thanks to David. Now a selection from the Monocle Film Club. The film director Martin Scorsese caused a stir recently when he suggested that superhero films are not cinema. Love blockbusters or hate them, it's hard to argue that the rise of big-budget franchise epics has made medium-sized standalone films an endangered species and rewritten our entertainment landscape. So, what happened? Hadley Freeman is a columnist at The Guardian and the author of Life Moves Pretty Fast, the lessons we learned from 80s movies.
4: Bueller? Bueller?
0: Um,
5: he's sick.
4: My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows this kid is going with the
5: girl who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. I guess it's pretty serious.
1: How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this?
5: Ferris Bueller's Day Off, I feel, is almost part of my blood. It was the first teen movie I ever saw, and it was the first live-action film I ever saw that wasn't an MGM musical. It was the first one my parents allowed me to see. And I watched it every day after school for more than a year, and I can still recite it. And I've had such a crush on Matthew Broderick. He was my first crush. And it's one of those movies from your childhood that really does last and changes as you get older. What's that? Sushi. Sushi? <laughs> Rice, uh, raw
3: fish and seaweed. You won't accept a guy's tongue in your mouth and you're going to
5: eat that? Can I eat?
3: I don't know. Give it a try.
5: Could these movies that we all love so much today exist now? And the truth is with the John Hughes teen movies probably not. Those movies were all mid-budget movies. So they weren't you know, the cheapo indies and they weren't the big superhero films. They're in the middle. And those are the movies that aren't made by studios anymore. And that's why we now have this very weird system with movies where you get these really interesting indie films or art house films or foreign films. But then mainly what we get is huge superhero movies from DC and Marvel. Because movies are now made to play all around the world, whereas in the 80s they were marketed just... Mainly Mainly to America. A Hollywood movie's takings in um, the 80s was 80% America, 20% the rest of the world. Now that's flipped. And on the one hand, you can say it's great that America is aware of the rest of the world. But on the other hand, it means that they're getting rid of things like dialogue, because dialogue is too hard to translate for the Chinese market. And it gets rid of the specificity, which is one of the main things of John Hughes' films. They're very much about American suburban kids out of it I can't. All right, well, then I must never see you again, and the bad blood will just have to stay there. Oh, Nancy, Beth was discovered in a local motel with a high political official.
2: They were both high. They've been smoking everything but
0: their shoes. She's the first Miss Merry Christmas in history to be caught with her tinsel down
5: around her knees. What happened during the 80s and by the end of the 80s is that all the various studios, things like Fox and Paramount, 20th Century, were bought by big conglomerates who weren't solely interested in movie making. They were interested in money making. And I'm hardly holding the 80s up here as like this era of non-capitalism bliss. Like obviously studios always went to make money, but now it was companies that saw them as just more products. You know, they could have been bottled water or something. And so movies began to be pitched in a much more, I'd say, cynical way, this idea of quadrants. You had to hit certain quadrants. Now a quadrant is how they divide up people. So it'd be like teenage boys, teenage girls, grown men, grown women. And their theory that came out of this was that teenage boys are the ones who all go to see a movie the weekend it comes out. And what they see, the most important time for a movie to make money, is that first weekend. So as long as a movie like, gets the number one, it's first weekend, then they can say it's a hit. So therefore, more and more movies began to be made just for teenage boys. And teenage girls, and grown women in particular, really just fell by the wayside. So when you look back on the 80s, it's kind of amazing how many movies were made very clearly for grown women. You know, Steel Magnolias, Moonstruck, Baby Boom, Terms of Endearment. You don't really see those movies now. I mean, occasionally they'll come along and go, oh, well, you know, we made The Help. It's like, yeah, that's like one movie from a studio that's made for grown women. Like, who cares? And also The Help entirely stars women under 35. So, like, that's your idea of, like, playing to the older female audience. That's just tragic. (laughs)
0: That was Hadley Freeman. Her book, All About Cinema of the 1980s, is titled Life Moves Pretty Fast. And I'm joined now by Ben Ryland, who's prepared a pick from the 1980s worth revisiting. Ben, do you even remember the 1980s? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The
6: the oldest I got in the 1980s was age five, actually. Uh, So I have some very vague memories, sadly not, of watching many movies of the 1980s. I had to revisit those later via Ye old VHS.
0: (laughs) Well, I have to say the movie you've chosen, I do remember it from the first time around. It came out in 1987. We're talking about Moonstruck.
6: Absolutely Moonstruck. And I'm not surprised that you remember this because it is absolutely one of the standard romantic comedies, not just of the 1980s, but of all romantic comedies, I think. And much of that comes down to the very fascinating tone of the film. You sort of had this understanding of how a romantic comedy feels to watch. It's often fluffy and moves quite quickly and is very light. There are some rather deep and, shall we say, even slightly bleak moments in Moonstruck, which really set it apart. And really cleverly offset that fun tone that it has during the scenes where we get to see the magnificent Cher falling in love with the rather bizarre character played by Nicolas Cage. It really is a film that that stands out amongst everything else in its genre, which of course is unsurprising given it was such a sensation when it was released in 1987. Cher went on to win the Oscar that year for um, Best Actress, uh, Olympia Dukakis, Went on to win the Best Supporting Actress Oscar as well, so it was really a, a magnificent achievement by all involved.
0: Mm. And I remember, as, a, as an impressionable youngster, looking at Cher, thinking I'd never seen anyone so beautiful. And then years later, reading that in fact she, you know, basically had complete reconstruction of her body, ribs removed, and so on, to look like that, which was, <laughs> you know, unreal expectations from teenagers.
6: Perhaps yes, perhaps <laughs> I think the rib removal might be urban legend. But, oh really? Uh, Damn. But there's Certainly no secret about Cher's adventures at The Plastic Surgeon. But in the words of Cher herself, if she wants to get a pair of breasts attached to her back, that's her prerogative and no one else's business.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Um, I think you're, you're absolutely right, though, placing this at the heart of a kind of... I mean, of course, we'd had rom-coms before, lots of the kind of 1950s movies and things like that. But placing this at the heart of the, the new generation of, of romantic comedies.
6: Absolutely. And you think about the films that came out at around the same time as well. It really was pushing this genre, and it led the way, or at least partly led the way, in having this genre taken a little bit more seriously. When we think about romantic comedies, there are classic rom-coms of the 1930s, the 1940s, 1950s and 60s, going up to the Doris Day and Rock Hudson films, but there aren't really many memorable films of this genre coming out in the 1970s. So you had a bit of a black hole mm. going through the 70s and then 80s, and then this coming out in 87, around the same time as when Harry met Sally, Nora Ephron, coming into force as one of the, the real leading contenders in this genre. It forced people to look at these and realise that actually these talk-heavy relationship dramas, which essentially they are, we call them romantic comedies, but essentially they are dramas surrounding the complex. Of the way we form relationships, it really helped us look at these and, and, and realize that actually these are serious films. They're not masculine. They don't. They're not full of explosions, and they're not led by the concerns of men. They primarily concern women. Now that leads to a lot of film critics to not take them as seriously perhaps because a lot of film critics are men, but they are serious films.
0: That is Ben Ryland. And Ben, if we want to watch Moonstruck, we don't have to get the old VHS. The old VHS,
6: no. <laughs> if you're in the UK, hopefully it's actually streaming right now on Netflix. It wouldn't surprise me if that is the same case in many other parts of the world as well. But even if it's not, don't worry. It's very easy to come across. Thank goodness.
0: Ben Ryland, thank you. More picks from our Monocle Film Club next week. Finally today, the new issue of Monocle magazine is out now. It's our Japan special, filled with soft power awards, a Christmas gift guide, big noodles, small cars and a giant bear with rosy red cheeks. Here's our executive editor, Josh Fennett.
4: Anyone who spent any time in Japan will have left with questions. Lots of questions. Why don't we have bullet trains in Europe and the US? How can Tokyo do hot dogs better than the Big Apple and red sauce pasta joints more satisfying than the Milanese? Oh, and what is that dancing salaryman doing wearing the head of a fish? Meet Kanpachiro, the mascot of Kanoya City, a peculiar place in Kagoshima Prefecture that wants to be known equally for benito fish and business. Yes, Japan is known for its quirk, but it's got lessons to teach the world too, from diplomacy to design and art to architecture. It's a nation forging forward in everything from aviation to tackling the problem of ageing communities. What's more, it's set to up its visitor numbers after a successful Rugby World Cup this year and the Olympics approaching next. For these reasons, and more besides, we've made Japan the centrepiece of the December-January issue of Monocle. Our admiration for all things Nippon has always fed our journalist curiosity, and yes, if we're honest, our enthusiasm for sing-until-dawn karaoke sessions too. It's the reason we've had an office in Tokyo since 2007, and why we don't take the task of showcasing the nation's best businesses, designers, fashion folk, or craftspeople too lightly. There are lots to choose from, and we've met many over the years. Our team of journalists were dispatched from our leafy low-rise offices in Tomagaya, Tokyo, to all corners of the island nation to report on best practice in urban regeneration, new media models and music, as well as profiling the nation's best modern national treasures. What they brought back, as well as plenty of material for our new book on Japan, which will be published in 2020, is a magazine that's bursting with ideas, inspiration and oddity. And yes, some of those answers you were hankering for too. For Monocle, I'm
0: Josh Fennett. Thank you, Josh. Keep an eye out for the new issue of Monocle magazine. It's on all good newsstands now. And that's your Winter Weekend. The programme was produced by Ben Ryland and our studio manager was Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin. Have a
2: lovely weekend.